Welcome to Wishes Granted. I'm Kyle, and today I talk to Matt Bonds at Pivot Health and Maria Franco at Mulago Foundation. Matt Bonds is co-founder of Pivot Health, a local healthcare provider in Madagascar, and previously he worked for Partners in Health in Rwanda, that famous organization, for five years. Maria is the director of programs at Mulago Foundation, where she recruits and selects fellows. It's a real pleasure to talk to both of them today, doubleheader, Welcome to Wishes Granted, Maria and Matt. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks, Kyle. Good to be here. So <laughs> first off, I want to just um, get a little bit more information from both of you about your organizations. Matt, let's start with Pivot Health. What is it that you do in a few um, sentences? Pivot is a Madagascar-based healthcare delivery organization, and Our aim is to create a model system of uh, universal health coverage at the level of the district in Madagascar. So our major value proposition is we work across the entire system. So community health, primary care, secondary care, and data and science. So the system and the data. So we have data all up and down that system to inform programs, measure impact, and expand knowledge on how to improve the design of healthcare systems. All right, Maria, can you say a bit yes. about Yeah, so we're a, a small foundation in San Francisco. What we do is we find and fund different leaders that have solutions to extreme poverty. So we find people like Matt that have an organization and a really interesting big idea. And then we work with them to help them design for more impact and also aim for really big scale so they can help more people faster and better. And then we fund them. So that's sort of our model there. I think it's really interesting model. You got the funding of for fellowship early on, early, really early on in the process, and then follow-on funding as well, which is really great. And Matt, it's really interesting what you're doing at Pivot because I mean, local healthcare, that's like so fundamental, important, but also you got this data layer, which is completely missing. I've been involved in many different health projects, and there's like absolutely no data available for so much of healthcare. And I'm really interested to learn more about that. So Matt, I want to start digging a bit and find out what was the moment you decided to start this company? Was there a moment when you're like, oh my gosh, I got to do this thing, quit what I'm doing and take this crazy chance at something that probably people said like, this is impossible. You can't do this. But then you did. Why? What was that moment? Yeah, there was actually a moment and, and you're right. That's how it goes. There's a moment that says this is impossible. And we have to do it anyways, or we have to try, right? That's what happens. So for us, I don't know how to do this in a short, in a short bit, but I'll do my don't, best. Don't go for it. Okay. So our genesis was I had been working with Partners in Health in Rwanda and really closely in particular with a guy named Michael Rich, who is the national director. He's a physician and he's now one of the co-founders of Pivot. And we were working hard with the broader team at Partners in Health around health system strengthening. PIH was the largest non-governmental healthcare provider in Rwanda. Rwanda was going through a health system transformation. And we were really struggling, we and others, around how to collect data. And what it became, um, it became the bane of someone like me who was trained as a PhD, have a PhD in economics and a PhD in ecology, and all the data that we needed to measure impacts were not available. They were they started being collected, you know, many years after we started, and that that but that became general around. We noticed that became general around the global health community is a lack of evidence of impacts, and um, 
which means you're flying blind actually uh, in many ways. And that's a very frustrating feeling to witness change, but to have very, very weak in data, quantifiable data that's easily shareable and generalizable with others to show what's working, what's not working and how big the impact is. <clears throat> so we were invited to I was invited by some colleagues who are now close friends to advise on a project in Madagascar. And, and we came only as advisors. Dr. Michael Rich and I came and said, oh, this is, this is work that you might be able to do. Yes, we, we actually invited under the condition that if we thought it was um, impractical to do the kind of healthcare work that we're doing in Rwanda, we should say so and say, you know, yes, like invest somewhere else. This is hard. Or Madagascar is a, is a very compelling country. So we first visited there in 2012. And the first thing that we noticed, which has since been validated by the data, is Madagascar was, was woefully behind and falling behind much of sub-Saharan Africa that had been enjoying a lot of the advantages of the, trans, the transformation global health that had been happening since the millennium, right? So like totally new institutions emerged since um, the turn of the millennium, like the Global Fund for HIV, TB, and malaria, et cetera. And so you'd seen a lot of, a lot of improvements across sub-Saharan Africa and Madagascar was getting worse. So there, the moment for us, so we, and, and this is easily seeable. We, walk, we, would, we visited health facilities, health centers, hospitals, and every time we'd go, there would be people dying who are getting untreated, which is actually not as much the case in a place like Rwanda at that time, just again, 2012. So there's a particular moment though, when we had made the decision to start the organization. And that was where we were in uh, one primary care health center, Ranamafana Health Center, which is now where our headquarters is. It's uh, right next to Ranamafana National Park, which is a um, UNESCO World Heritage Site. Gets 50,000 tourists a year, beautiful place. <clears throat> Lots of good work happening around there. And we came into a health facility where there was a girl who was maybe eight or nine years old and she had cerebral malaria. And as we're getting on a tour, of this facility, we didn't know that she was there. She was the last, it was the last final ward we saw. We're actually getting a very casual, informal tour from the doctor, that doctor. And all the while, when we finally go into this final ward, she's there and she's agonal breathing. So she can, she's gasping for breath. And so Dr. Michael Rich said, oh, this girl's in really big trouble. She's, she could die any minute here. And she had been untreated with anything. And so when Michael, again, he's a doctor, I'm the researcher at that time, had advised, oh, well, it's, if the issue is the financial barrier, we need, let's find that we can pay for that. Well, as it turned out, the health facility didn't have anything. They didn't have treatment for malaria. They didn't have an IV bag. They didn't have antibiotics. They had they didn't have a pharmacist who had been paid for a year. So there was just actually nothing there. So we grabbed her, <laughs> grabbed, that is not the right language. We asked quickly and politely her father mm -hmm. if we could go to the hospital and, and he came along and in the, the district hospital that serves 200,000 people also didn't have an IV bag or malaria treatment or whatever. Wow. So we went to the private pharmacy, procured that for, you know, it's a slightly more complex treatment for cerebral malaria, but it's $25 quinine drip IV bag. And she lived, she, she, she like wow. she treated and a few days later, she's alive. And that experience, I was there with Michael and another current co-founder, Jim Hernstein, and other members who are now part of our board. And it was like one of these moments where that, what Paul Farmer, my, one of my mentors would say is, oh, this is where we, you were this close to what he would call a stupid death, highly pre treatable, highly preventable illness, 
like very inexpensive to deal with. And we're sitting there and just as a normal experience walking through the health facility and what we, yeah. So at that moment, it was, it became clear that it would be, it would have been, it would have felt unethical to turn our back in that particular situation and go back to Rwanda. And we had some people interested in supporting that. Wow. Yeah. So Madagascar pulled you in. I mean, you could have just put one more death on the the statistic, any data that's being collected, but that is, they didn't, she didn't go on that statistic. That's right. That's right. Yeah. We later, we collected baseline data soon after that. And we, we had learned that at that time, the under five mortality was one in seven. So one of children, one of seven children died before they're five years old. So this is much worse than what they had thought was happening nationally and what you had been seeing throughout most of Sub-Saharan Africa. So the, so the conditions are actually a response. Wow, that's, a, that's definitely a compelling call to action from the world to, to jump in and do something because you knew you could and you, you know, done something similar in Rwanda. Maria, so what did you see in Pivot when they, you know, were exception to your program that you thought, wow, this is a really good fit for what we do and we can help Pivot get to the next level? Yeah, I don't know if Matt remembers this, but I think we first, I first met Matt in 2016. And I think it was like my first week at Milago. And Matt rocks in <laughs> and he rocks in. And I'm with our CEO, Kevin, and he's he's an ER doc by training. And I, I'm sitting there listening, and Matt just goes on a tirade, just sort of a blizzard of genius. Mad genius is how like I left. I didn't understand what he did. I knew he did a ton of stuff. I, I knew he was doing something at the clinic level, something at the CHW level, something at the facility level, and then data. And so at the end of it, he left, and I looked at Kevin, and I was like, oh my God, I, I didn't understand any of that. And Kevin was like, I didn't get most of it, and I'm a doc. So, mm. so then I think a couple couple years later, we had heard through this growing collective of other health nonprofits that Pivot was really doing excellent work on the ground in Madagascar. And so we're like, well, let's talk to him one more time. And, and see if he's sort of coalesced on a model because Milago is really focused on, is there a real solution that can be replicated and eventually scaled up big to solve an entire problem? And so the next time Matt came in, he was sort of pitching us on this big idea. How do we do a district health model? And, and how does that facilitate universal health care? And we've been doing this great model at one site in one district. And how do we actually think about stripping it back and getting the core components and actually scaling up through government. And then we can cover the entire country. And so this was a new idea for us. And we've been funding in in global health for a long time. And so we thought his obsession with sort of data and this wraparound of we're going to work with CHWs, we're going to buff up clinics, we're going to make sure the right medicines are there, and then we're going to connect it to hospitals. And the whole thing is going to be woven with data, data so we actually can know what's happening on the ground and then make changes based on that. I think that was like, okay, here's an idea. We can work with someone that's brilliant and has an idea and really has the ambition and commitment to scaling. So then in 20, I think 2018, you were a fellow, a couple years later, and it was such a great, I don't know, for me, it was a great fellowship. We also went and saw them in the field and got to know their patients and their team and actually see the work in motion. Matt, do you remember that fellowship experience? Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> what? Yeah. what is a fellowship? It hasn't like? ended. It's a continuous. Uh-huh. <laughs> Once a fellow, always a fellow. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Sorry, I missed the question. Oh yeah. What was the what is the fellowship like? What is it? You know, why would someone why should someone be a part of this? 
Right. So the, I, I, my guess is that my experience is actually a fairly common one, though I don't know. Maria can answer that. So, so it's exactly, there's like a long incubation period, you know, like, you know, you're flirting or dating or something like that. Like some, some non-committal <laughs> relationship situation, right? You like keep on checking in with each other is what it felt like over the course of several years. And then the, when the fellowship happens, it's what strike what was initially striking for me is a complete reversal of the dynamic. So up until that point, it felt I think this is an okay thing to say. As yeah, a as a as a these kind of fun things, you feel almost desperate, right? Like what you we need, like for the work to move on, is to get support. That's a financial that's a support. You have to get financial support. Mm-hmm. It's required. And and the and and there's a amplification effect that like more support leads to further support, right? And and that's both within a particular has a potential within a particular foundation or institution, and also across the space. So there's a dependency, a mutual dependency there. So there's so so you're kind of like. Um, so you're, the feeling is, okay, I'm, 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 I'm the desperate one. I'm going to, I'll do whatever they ask all as often as I can, whatever it needs to happen, I'll hop on a plane. I'll just make this happen. That's how it feels. Right. right. And so the reverse reversal is that the fellowship is the opposite. So is like where, in other words, asking people for money is indignifying. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean that like genuinely with humor, right? It's an indignifying yeah. process in a, yeah. in a funny way, but the reverse was, um, the fellowship is very indignifying. It is very dignifying, right? It's like they 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 work really hard. They have a very carefully produced program, right? There's a very specific, highly curated series of lectures. There's a highly curated process of meeting each other. There's like very curated moments where you're spending time, downtime, hanging out at the beach. And which is sort of where, I don't know if that's always gonna be the case where you do the fellowship, but that's what's happened for in Bolinas, I think. And mm-hmm near the Bay Area. And so you, it's like the dynamic is completely reversed. Now they're treating you like, like something, you, you know, you, you're there to make important things happen and they're going to take advantage of every moment of time that they have with you. So it's a week long process. It's like, I, like, I call it like a summer camp. It feels like you're in summer camp. You know, you're sharing a room with another fellow. You're having breakfast, lunch, and dinner with them. You're hanging out. People play music in the evenings or something. Oh, and wow. then we do that for a couple of years. Yeah. Mm. Two years in a row. So have you made good friends in that? Yeah, I would say with those people, very connected. Yeah, I wouldn't. Yeah, I'd call, I wouldn't know. I don't. It's almost impossible to distinguish between friends and colleagues. Definitely partners, long-standing relationships that I have contact with all of the time and throughout all of the work that we do, we rely on each other constantly. Actually, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I get, think that's text messages every day from yeah. colleagues. <laughs> yeah, I could, I could show you what they're, they're asking about financial questions just now. You know, uh, you got a WhatsApp group for you. Yeah, exactly. You share. That's great. Yeah. Um, I think that's so important. And for anyone listening, having a, a group of colleagues, fellow entrepreneurs that you do something with some kind of accelerator, whether Mulago or something else, it pays dividends over time, over the next five, 10 years. I think that's so important. So Maria, that was a couple years ago. What are you looking for now at Mulago to have in your program? Are there any particular sectors you want to see more of? Or any particular yes. problems you want people to? I think we're, you know, I think we've been funding in health for a long time. I think we're going to continue to do that. Mulaga's mission is really to to solve, to meet the basic needs of the very poor. And so anything like if an entrepreneur or an NGO leader comes in with a really good idea, and then they can make the case that it's a basic need, we're open to hearing it. So we've funded in roads. Road safety actually kills a disproportionate amount of very poor people. So that wasn't a thing that was on funders sort of radar. And so we, we put push that forward and supported that work. 
bridges connecting people from very remote places into places where there are markets and clinics and schools like very important idea and girl safety self-defense there's all kinds of things that we are open to seeing as like a basic need for the very poor so mostly we're funding in health education livelihoods because most most of those livelihoods are for smallholder ag we do a lot in agriculture and the thing i think we're, we're open to a lot of big ideas we're we're open to people that have new models and new ideas and new geographies and really accelerating those and the people that have real ambition for scale. What I will say is that we, we have a parallel program that's focused on conservation and climate. And it is so funny. I think the funding situation is dire in the poverty space, but it's much, much worse in the conservation space. And so I, I just think that as our planet is sort of on fire, the fact that more money isn't just being piled on to conservation, to nature-based solutions, to our rivers, our water, our oceans, our mountains, our land is kind of mind-blowing. So that's what we're really looking at right now. So not, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm pretty new to conservation. When I started this work, I was in humanitarian aid and working on the NGO side, but for me, conservation was like studying frogs and insects, and it was irrelevant to my life and irrelevant to my community. And now it's so intertwined with, do we have clean water? Do we have a healthy food system? You know, is it going to get too hot? What are the rains going to be like? I think it's, it's the most important thing we need to be focusing on. And it has all these outsized effects on health and education and safety. So that's what we're excited about. So anyone interested in conservation should check out that program. And now what yeah. stage do you want someone to be at? Should they have revenue or should this be an idea? I think in the fellowship, you provide a little bit of funding, but not very much. Or maybe it's just a fellowship. How far along should they be? So people have a sense yeah. of like, it's not worth my time to apply or not worth my totally. time to get involved. Yeah. I think it's both like, it's about the money. It comes with a hundred grand and it's unrestricted. And so it comes out in two tranches. So you go to this like week long summer camp thing and, and we help you think about design and really measuring your impact and being accountable and responsible for impact and then scale. And then we issue out 50 K and unrestricted and we do that twice. Um, so I think in terms of, there's like too early where the idea, there's like nothing actually to work on. So you should be working with like a few farmers, you know, a few hundred patients, a few moms or students. And so that there's actually something for us to work against and, and think about design on. So, so earlier is good. And I think that's where we have outsized impact and there's fewer funders. And so we can really support. And I think that's why a lot of entrepreneurs and NGO leaders like us, because we're willing to take big bets. And I also think we've taken things that are sort of older organizations that have been around a lot longer, particularly in health. Um, and they're at an inflection point. I hate that word, but they're at a real like turning point where they have a new, new leader or they have a new idea and they're really shifting things and stripping things off and they're poised to actually replicate and scale. So I think if someone's in like a go big mode and they've got some decent proof points, then I think that's the right time for a Malago. Mm -hmm. So it's past the R&D stage. Yeah. Yeah. That's a... A lot of people don't see that, that they're in the R&D I mean, for us, we think all these ideas are in R&D. <laughs> we think that Pivot's still in R&D, you know, in terms of like, once you move beyond like one district, they've got a, a lot of evidence this thing goes in one district. But can you prove that this is going to work across an entire country? What so our Malaga's definition of R&D is like pretty oh, intense. Yeah. I'm thinking like <laughs> um, zero to one, you know, it's like, yeah, you can do yeah. one. Yeah, it actually works. A lot yeah. of people don't even have one yet, which yeah, is fine. Yeah. It's just a different part along the 
And some are in this sort of replication stage and they're honing the model in replication and we're gonna try to get them right before they're gonna actual scale up. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of like these transition periods in, in their organizational development and their growth. Mm -hmm. Got it. As far as here's a question, I'm not, not sure you know the answer to this and I don't want you to throw anyone under the bus so you can anonymize the answer. In the due diligence process, what kinds of mistakes do you see you know, potential fellows make that you would warn people against, if you can answer that question? Um, yeah, it's an interesting one because I think clear communications are really important, but like, yeah, there's, there's little things that people sort of bumble on, but it's because they're doing really hard work in really hard places. And so I think particularly nonprofits have a hard time articulating what they do. The for-profit space has decks and they have like a series, there's a structure to raising money. There's expectations. I just wish there was way more money so that we could fund way more stuff. Because right now it's about like, how polished are you? What's your website look like? All these artificial things. And so, so I'll, I'll get to like what people can do to apply and maybe win more grants or more relationships. But I do think fundamentally, it's just, there's not enough money going into the social sector. And that again, blows my mind. Like how the hell are we funding all this stuff in Silicon Valley? when we have these social and environmental problems right in front of us. I think if we just change financial flows to align with our, our values and our future, then we wouldn't have to split hairs so much and pick between entrepreneurs because we just see amazing people every single day. So that said, um, given we have limited resources and we have to make a lot of cho hard choices, we look at probably 400 per program and pick 10. Wow. So it's extremely difficult. It's, it's extremely difficult. And, and so, you know, I wish we had way more money <laughs> and because probably a hundred of them are really doing incredible work. And so, so anyway, I think clear communications, a lot of people are coming in and they're doing a lot of different things. And so how do you actually communicate? The book that helped me communicate a lot better was it's called On Right and it's by Stephen King. And I read that book and my writing improved overnight. And so if you could get that book, <laughs> I, I would say that's, that's a pretty good investment. Okay. I also think advice. Yeah. And I think I, there's like this spray and pray approach where, where, where people are just hitting up all foundations and not really taking it seriously. And I think that's kind of exhausting for the entrepreneur because you're going to get a lot of no's. And so being a little bit more targeted and doing a little bit better job, I think might be better. And I think also just making sure like the no's are hard and it is like really difficult. And I think there's a tipping point where you just heard too many no's in a week and then you start to give up a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so I think being very cautious and careful with yourself and your team and how much, how many hits you can take in a week, because you need to last until you get a win and your work is too important to, to sort of compromise that. Yeah. Yeah. I really only need uh, one win early on and then yeah. you can get, get sucked into doing something yeah. great. That's, that's a good point about communication, probably fast response and clear um, communication about what it is you do. So hard to do, but really important in writing. I'd so, like to make a comment about that last yeah. bit that um, only, I just think it's a really apt comment. So one of the podcasts that I enjoy is How I Built This. Mm. And Guy one Raz. of the themes by Guy Raz and I don't know if this is an explicit theme or just an emergent one, but is how many entrepreneurs are like, find themselves living on a couch at some point, right? Like, yeah, you know, yeah. it's like, you're just taking setback and setback and setback until things coalesce, which makes sense. It's hard to start things. Things aren't working the way they're going to work at the beginning, right? Yeah. And it takes time. And of course, that's a barrier to entry. And 
it's going to be hard to be compete with organizations that are out there like with a more honed product. And so you have to suffer through those setbacks. And that's a requirement, you know, in, in the work. And so, you know, it is interesting that, you know, the, even the most successful, you know, CEOs with existing founder CEOs in the world, they were sleeping on couches at some point, you know, mm-hmm. they kept with it. How about you, Matt? Did you have What's a that? ramen couch point? <laughs> What's, what's, excuse was me. there a ramen point where you're eating ramen? Sitting there was not a ramen. No, there. I didn't have a ramen. Not not a literal one. I have like I have another job too. I'm a professor, and so I have like. But there's a metaphorical one. You know, I would say for the first few years, there's. I mean, I would say for us, the first four or five years, it feels existential. I mean, you know, the process feels like is this going to be a valid enterprise that should have even been started in the first place? And so it's more like emotionally, it, it's there's ram, lots of ramen noodles. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, the feeling like, oh, I should really just quit this. And then mm-hmm. sticking with it for four years of being like, mm, we should probably just quit. This isn't working. And then it works. It's really yeah. hard to get through. Uh-huh. I remember yeah. one time I had a change. I was, I was an entrepreneur as well. Had a change jar full of money and that was in coins. It's all the money I had left. I had to make a sale. I remember that. I just had I just had spinach and ugali in Kenya for <laughs> two weeks until I uh-huh. until I made some money. You were gonna say something, Matt? No, that's that's great. So okay. I also think just piggybacking off of that, there's like that I think a lot of folks undersell what they're doing and how important it is because they get in this dynamic of like, I'm desperate for funding. I, I'm like second guessing myself because I've heard so many no's and how am I going to get this off the ground? But I think often people undersell how amazing their work is. So I think a lot of what we do at Milago is just sort of try to flip that to, to Matt's earlier point. Fun, funding does nothing if there's not a good source to put that money into. So I will say like, sell what you're what you're actually doing because it's very important and then there's a smaller batch of folks that sort of over promise and I find that particularly irritating and you know there's you know we're going to serve a million farmers next how many are you serving right now oh 50 interesting and so I think there's some folks that over promise and then there's a, a lot more folks that sort of undersell mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. true too true uh, Matt I was wondering now we're talking about the experience of being an entrepreneur early on. If you have any recommendations for anyone who's trying to replicate your model, I'm not sure how you feel about people borrowing, stealing, replicating your model, but presumably you've you know, copied what other people have done before you and made it better. Do you have any recommendations for someone trying to do sort of what you're doing, but somewhere else in the world? Hmm, what would you have done differently? So I would say, yeah, exactly. A lot of what we've done are building off of the work of others, right? So, you know, we didn't invent community health. You know, we learned community health from our peers and, and colleagues and in, in the great work that's happening all over the world. So I, I would say in terms of our practical lessons that we've learned in this process for this can be quite subtle, but go big on data early. Like when one of the things that's really hard for us to justify the early stages was spending a quarter of our annual budget, our first annual budget on data, right? Which sounds insane, right? Like you're gonna spend $100,000 collecting data on a, on a $400,000 project where kids are dying of untreatable illness. Yeah. So that's a, that's yeah. a very hard thing to justify. And it's very hard to get people to pay for that, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm gonna spend $100,000 to collect data from an organization that doesn't have a website, you know? Or is just blowing their website. And so I went to an individual donor who are also our, our co-founders, Joan Robin Herrnstein, 
who are who are, are trained in science and they said, well, can't someone else pay for this data? And we said, nope, no one's going to pay for NIH isn't going to pay for this. Like small foundations are going to pay for an organization that doesn't exist to collect data. And we need it. We, we need a baseline. It's really important. And that uh, that approach and one of our second hire, our second hire was the head of monitoring and evaluation. So we hired a first project manager and then hired a head of monitoring and evaluation. And, the, and there's, there is a risk of like being too data heavy, being too research focused and being like ivory tower-ish. Don't be that, I'm not suggesting be that. But the data keeps on going and you can't recollect it. And so, I mean, keeps on giving. And so we, when we did our early stages, what I had found from the very beginning and we would go to funders and the thing, our conversation changed when we presented data. Like when we said, we shared maps of where the mortality was and like the disease burden, who has access and suddenly, their trust changes. They're not taking your word for it, right? You know, you're not making up what your impacts are. You're not making up what you think is the is the problem. You're sharing real information from the very beginning. And that that has, you know, so we collected data from, we started with a survey of 8,000 individuals, a longitudinal survey. We tracked them over time, household surveys, in addition to patients, patient, hundreds of thousands of patients' records as we started. And that's the piece that I feel like has allowed us to inform our programs, to get smarter, to align our organizations from the beginning, to make, converse, to make conversation coherent with our funders, et cetera. And so, you know, that all happens to also be one of our particular strengths. But I just, I think, I think uh, if you do it right, it's actually, there's a big return on investment for the people that you're serving. That's a really interesting point. A quarter of your budget early on on data but the thing is the data just wasn't there before. You had to do it yourself because I don't know, probably the previous study had been done in like 2001 or something like that. And I think uh, actually there's, there's some services now, 60 decibels, maybe some others, they, for maybe 10K or so, you can get some interesting data on your customers. I'm not sure what you think of that program, but I've seen some good results. That's really interesting. Uh, yeah. Data collection. All right. So I want to go into for Pivot, one thing that worked, you were really surprised about, and one thing that didn't, that you were like, I was sure that was going to work, but why didn't that work out? Do you have mm -hmm. anything like, do you have anything like that? What's one thing that worked that totally surprised you? Jeez. <clears throat> I'm sure I wrote something down before this started, but the- That's all right. The, let me, well, I'll offer the things that have worked the things that have worked and not worked are kind of one and the same. I would say that like the, our biggest, our biggest challenge and like our sweet spot has been in government relationships. So in the very beginning, we're in, we work in the public health system, so you just can't do that obviously without government partnerships. And that is a complex thing anywhere in any country under any circumstances. But Madagascar's had coups. They've had you know six ministers of health since we've started. They have their used to turnover, and so. We, we're always navigating the public relationship because that's gonna form the basis of, of what we do. And surprising, and all those relationships are personal, with the personal relationships with personal representatives in the government, but they also honor MOUs. So creating early partnerships, establishing what those are, having at each moment of turnover, slightly strengthening those opportunities, you know, 
And, and being careful about lining politically, we don't, we have really good guidance from one of our board members and senior advisors, Benjamin Anjumiaha, and he's protected us from aligning too much with any particular government leader who's like, who's like, yeah, this person's probably not going to be here in a year. And you want to be careful about how closely you align, you know? So he's literally said things like, now's not the best time for the president to visit, you know? We're like, we think the president would be good. That'd be good. He said, no, I don't think so, you know? <laughs> you know, once that president's not going to be there. And, and so I think that has been a piece that like we fumbled through at times, but also I think we have kind of, we've, we've rolled with it pretty well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. One thing on data collection, I'm not sure if this is the case for you, but I've seen with other organizations is that relationships are really important for data collection because someone needs to be collecting the data and maybe it's at a government hospital. And if you don't have a good relationship there, they're like, who's this bombs fellow, you know, right. and yeah. never give you the data or never collect it or never do a good that, job at it. Totally. That's exactly right. So when we first started, there are certain kinds of data that we could collect. And certain kinds of data we couldn't, you know, we're talking about the public health system. We don't have rights to that data, right? So, and at the at early stages, um, it wasn't clear how long it would take to build those kinds of partnerships. So the, what we did is we tend to always go like one or two steps above, right? So what we did is in, we uh, embraced the regional director. So that's like the level above the district where we worked. And we um, invested in their data management system. So we supported their, their data management audits. We helped them hire data. They supported their regional m and system. So those people are in charge of consolidating data that happened across their districts and, present, and presenting that to the ministry. So we strengthened through them their data collection system. And over time, the what used to be barriers that I've, I've actually almost forgotten about that were existing in the first year are, all, are totally vanished now. Now we have, we, we work hand in hand with the government on those, on their monitoring and evaluation systems. But yeah. What was those, the barrier those, that you faced early on? If you can talk about. Yeah. I mean, so we, we would, we, we had our own data dashboard that were, you know, were, were reported, you know, utilization outpatient utilization and various kinds of cases. And there might be delays at some, and sometimes there's a month or three months or sometimes longer. And, you know, early in that, what we started, we'd go to our head, who, the person who's now our national director, we'd say, Laura, what's, you know, where, what's going on with the data? And she said, yeah, I'm asking from the district uh, medical office for the data. And, you know, they're not ready to share it. Like they're cleaning it and whatever. And so that, that relationship just, just builds over time. Like the, we're not, we, we stop asking them for data. We have a partnership around the data collection, right? We, we help pay for the existence of their, we help them clean their own data, right? And we, we share the data mutually. And so they have their ME system. They report that up the chain of command at the, in the national level. And we consolidate data and keep it into a, a database. So I think it's just our investments in their system for their purposes of monitoring and evaluation, and then those personal relationships. And to, okay, yeah. And to get that funding for the data early on, you think the only way to do it is to basically have a, you know, individual funder, a individual basically, to find there's not really any programs to fund data collection. Not for, I mean, I don't, I don't, it's really hard to do if you don't exist and have a reputation to generate the kind of resources you need. One thing that I find assuring is that a lot of these young social entrepreneurs and organizations are able to access funding from organizations that used to focus primarily on service. And now I've been surprised that they'll, they'll, you know, you, you know, a a relatively young organization can get a $50,000 grant to build out their monitoring evaluation systems, their data systems. 
And that didn't seem, I wasn't aware of that a decade ago, the way it seems to be recognized as a valid priority from funders. I don't know if that's your experience, Maria. I think there's more, what I'm seeing, especially at the early stages, like unrestricted. Like I think like we've been champions, I mean, Kevin's been talking about unrestricted funding for 20 years. And so I hope that that's sort of a growing consensus that there's sort of a trust, trusted relationship. There's a process of getting to know each other. And then you trust the leadership and the expertise and the contextual expertise of the person leading the, the organization. And you decide how you want to spend it. Yeah, hopefully more unrestricted funding. Uh, that's a good um, segue in the next question I had for you, Maria, about your, your models. You know, there's something there's something a lot very unique about what Mulago does. There's some things that are, you know, fairly normal impact bottom of the pyramid. Other things very unique, like you know, unrestricted money. It seems like the for, the format you have, the formula you have for doing mm -hmm. this makes that possible in a way it's not really possible for other funders because you built trust, because there's a fellowship, you know people, you built a relationship, and then because of that, then you're able to make some of these other things happen. Would you say that's true or how do you think about trust and what would you recommend to other funders? Yeah, I guess I, I think the fellowship does provide, I think even like getting to know Malago, it's it's a series of conversations. There's a really short application form just so we get an equal baseline across a bunch of different organizations and we can evaluate them, not on those that have a flashy website or a fancy deck, but like the substance of the work. And let's not get distracted by LinkedIn and where you went to school and where you come from. So that, that's been a big sort of change for Mulago. And we asked just the things that sort of matter most. And then from there, we have three conversations and, and we have, we're all generalists at Mulago and, and sort of everyone has a different take. And we debate across which ones we think that are sort of ready for the fellowship where we can learn something and, and they can also learn from, sorry, my dog's crying in the other room. So, so yeah, I think that like the, the whole, we're thinking a lot about the experience of, of everyone we interact with. And it, frankly sucks that we can't support more fellows. And so how do we actually get more of our teaching and our ideas out to all the folks that, that we talk to that are doing good work? And then the fellowship is like, you know, in the pre-pandemic era, it was a lot of relationship time. It was again, hanging out on a week and talking about big ideas. And I think a lot of the magic was bringing in people from all over the world doing the same hard thing that are up against a lot of the same problems and them feeling in community. I think it's very lonely at the top and making very hard decisions where there isn't a lot of evidence or best practice of what works. You're making it up, you're inventing it. So I think that that cohort is extremely powerful and we just try to ask good questions and support and encourage and fund. And through that like two year engagement, we also used to travel and spend a week with an entrepreneur that doesn't have really any other funders. And so that's a lot of sort of early support. And then from there, the bar goes way up and it's sort of like, okay, do we think that this individual, the team they're building, the resources they're attracting in this solution can go big. And if yes, we're gonna up the ante and we're gonna put a lot more money in. And so I think we are really trying to stack our funding early where there is less risk appetite from other funders. So I think the digital, I will say has been really hard. I'm going to a full digital program 
And a lot of the magic of just spending time together is gone. And it does feel more like a transaction. We've tried to curate the hell out of it and make good one-on-ones, but there's nothing like being in person together. You're fighting people's open tabs, you know, and you're fighting the, the noise and the laundry and everything else. And so we are hoping to bring people back together and do like sort of leverage the best of the hybrid model of digital where we can bring people together more often and an in-person and see how that goes. I'm sure that will happen soon. (laughs) We've said this three times. So one thing is that you sort of have limited proposal. I think you don't have an open application. Mm -hmm. It's by referral. So anyone who wants to get involved with, I was like, wow, this sounds amazing. I want what Matt had. What would you recommend to them? Yeah, I, I think send us an email like maria at mulagofoundation.org. We're, we're not trying to be closed off. I think we just do a lot of the hunting on our own so that we don't take people's time. So we've got a massive list of aggregators that come before us and we divide those up and we look at all of those. If you're not on that list, it's okay. Like I get a million e- emails on LinkedIn through my personal email that's coming in through everyone. Everyone at Mulago is keeping their eyes out on promising leaders with solutions for the poor or the environment. So, so I think like email, and if it looks interesting, we'll invite you to that short form. If it looks like it might be aligned for, with what we're funding. Anything else that you want to draw people's attention to? Any way to follow what you're doing? I think our website, our, our head of comms, Alex, he does a great job on our website and we have quarterly links where we sort of aggregate all the things we're reading and thinking about um, into a quarterly newsletter. So that's a good way to just sort of stay in touch. We're trying to develop out maybe a virtual standalone course that we can share with with all and with anyone that's doing good work. And then in all of our conversations, we really try to support, encourage, give some some ideas and recommendations. And if we won't fund it, like point you in a direction of someone that might. And so, so that's sort of it. And I guess one last thing, I think, you know, as I look at hundreds of different organizations and leaders, I, I'm always like really sad and disappointed that there's not more women in the pipeline. If you're a woman out there, like build it and and it's hard. And I hope I'm going to build the company one day too. So we'll see. I'm sure you will. Can't wait to see it. Matt. Someone will fund it. Who might fund it? I don't know who could fund it. Matt, it might be full circle. That'd be great. We can switch roles. Matt, before we wrap up, anything that, any place for people to find more information about you, follow you, learn more about Pivot or any things that you want to draw people's attention to? Well, our website, www.pitworks.org. It's relatively updated and reflects sort of where we are. I, there is one thing that I would like to share just to say it out loud. It might not, might get cut from this or whatever, but I think one thing that's really unique and important about the Bulago Fellowship is actually two things. One is it really is a situation where the holes is different than the sum of the parts. Like it really does build a community and that community is super valuable, both in terms of guidance, strategy, like just the stuff that you deal with, the nine yards, logistics, operations, HR, and then your mission and also the funding, right? It's like, we we generate, we, we develop a relationship with funders through the community. Um, and that Milago community is like, is like one of the pillars of that. So I just wanted to, and then for us, it's gotten very explicit. There's something called the Community Health Impact Coalition, which is like another organization that's out there. That's a collection. It's a confederacy of all these community-based, many of organizations. Again, community, the community Health Impact Coalition. 
And a lot of those organizations have been processed through Mulago at some point, and it's explicit. So like now what you're talking about is the evidence base going from your particular location, your particular country that we're working up through, you know, the process of WHO guidelines, et cetera, and then back down. So it's like, how do you, how do you, how, evidence scales, evidence scales, like, you know, like mm-hmm. the sample size matters and, and changing local policy, especially in global health is influenced by, by the global, by both global protocols and the, et cetera. So, so that Lagos had a, has, has had a lot bigger impact than the, than the actual value of the fellowship and the funding, although the funding and the fellowship money is spent and we're ready for more great you heard it we're looking for more money um all right maria matt this has been fantastic thanks for taking the time to be on the podcast thanks Kyle. thanks for listening to wishes granted if you found something useful in there subscribe wherever you get your podcast and subscribe to our newsletter so you know when the next one comes out this is the kind of information that i wish i had when i started my business in kenya and so i'm sure there's someone else in your network who would benefit from this so please share with them so that they too can benefit from the lessons learned successes the failures of others because we're talking about millions of dollars here in every podcast if you can learn from the mistakes of others you can literally save yourself millions of dollars every time you listen share with someone else subscribe and we'll see you next time Thank you.